I want to invite you to open up your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 2, and we're going to continue our journey through there, through the uh, end of the second chapter, and in our last study together, in God's Word, we had the opportunity to see that self-righteousness is completely incompatible with the gospel, and that the only way for sinners to be reconciled to God is by faith in Christ alone, and even the religious Pharisees must believe in the sufficiency of Christ's righteousness. There are no exceptions. And in the opening chapters of Mark, Jesus, he continues to disciple the men that are following him, while at the same time, he's exposing the Pharisees. He's teaching them that the gospel is corrupted if you add anything to it. Religious works, merit, self-righteousness cannot be mingled with the true biblical gospel. They're so incompatible that Jesus provides two very graphic pictures in Mark chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. He offers two parables to illustrate that his new and internal gospel of repentance and forgiveness of sin could not be connected to or contained in the old and external traditions of self-righteousness and ritual. You may even recall the quote that I shared from a commentator last week, you cannot mix a new patch unshrunk with an old piece of cloth. Apostate Judaism rituals, Judaism's rituals and ceremonies are a worn out old garment and you cannot patch the holes in it with a piece of the gospel. It's not compatible. Jesus didn't come with a message to patch up the old system. He came with a message to replace it altogether. End quote. And so this is a tough pill for the Pharisees and for any religious self-righteous person to swallow. And just like Jesus went out and he tracked down Satan in the wilderness to, to let him know that he was going to have victory over temptation, Jesus, on the same, uh, with the same intentionality and the same pursuit, is tracking down those who are self-righteous, those who stand in the way of the gospel being fulfilled. And as a result, Jesus ordained two events that would specifically take place on the most prized and protected day that the Pharisees held, known as the Sabbath. And you'll notice in the notes that the title of the message is Sabbath Sabotage, because our Lord is going to confront their religious self-righteousness head-on by speaking to what may very well be the most sensitive topic amongst the Jews. And so if you're there with us, let's go ahead and read our our passage beginning in chapter 2, verse 23. And I'm actually going to read through chapter 3, verse 6, because both of these passages are helping us to see uh, virtually uh, the same thing as it relates to the righteousness of the Pharisees. Let's start in verse 23 of chapter 2. From the NAS it says, And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need? And he and his companions became hungry. How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with him. 
Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to him, with the, the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. In all three synoptic gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, these two passages are shared consecutively. And here the Lord is going to strike at the core of religious pride and self-righteousness. And as we'll see, these two Sabbath controversies reveal how religious self-righteousness continues to be incompatible with the gospel. Now, to properly understand the context, we must have an accurate understanding of the Sabbath. Our Western indifference and lack of understanding of the Jewish culture puts us at somewhat of a disadvantage in understanding its significance in Judaism. Most of the world's religions venerate sacred places. Islam, for example, honors Mecca. Hinduism, the the Ganges River. Shintoism, the island of Japan. Judaism also venerated Jerusalem, especially the temple as a sacred place. But it venerated something beyond it. And perhaps above it, a specific time called the Sabbath. And the word Sabbath transliterates a a Hebrew word that actually means to, to cease from work. To cease from activity or to rest. And those familiar with the creation account in Genesis recall that after God created uh, the, the world, six days of creation... He ceased from work on the seventh day. Not because he was tired, but he did so to provide an example for mankind. We get tired, do we not? We, we get fatigued. And so the Sabbath was created for the benefit of people. The Sabbath was written into the very fabric of creation for man's benefit and blessing. Later on, The Lord would declare to his chosen people, Israel, the Sabbath, the seventh day of the week would be a special time of rest and remembrance, which he incorporated into the Ten Commandments, which are revealed to us in Exodus chapter 20 and reiterated in Deuteronomy 5. Again, the primary purpose was to cease from their normal work week and to rest and be refreshed. This is all that the Sabbath was ever intended to be. God's people getting refreshed, spending the day reflecting on his hand of faithfulness and and, and kindness and goodness to them. Of course, it also allowed the nation of Israel to serve as a testimony 
right, as they took the day off and they pointed other people to the God of Israel through, through their faith and their practice, that they, that they set that day aside. But something terrible happened. Something terrible happened to the Sabbath. It was hijacked by the Pharisees and the religious leaders who began to place additional requirements and observances to the Sabbath. How bad did it get? Hundreds of years of compiled rabbinic teaching in the Talmud and the Mishnah offers great insight. Allow me to share just a brief overview of what was and wasn't permissible on the Sabbath. Included in Sabbath rest, by the way, were not just Jews, but also their slaves, animals, and even vegetation, which could not be cut, plucked, or uprooted. And the Dead Sea Scrolls preserved the most rigorous Sabbath regulations in Judaism, forbidden, forbidding even the carrying of children, giving of help to birthing animals, or to the retrieval of an animal fallen into a pit on the Sabbath. The Pharisaic and rabbinic traditions were only slightly less rigorous in their interpretation. The Mishnah lists 39 classes of work that profane the Sabbath, including those that we might expect, such as plowing, hunting, and butchering, and those that you may not expect, such as tying or loosening a knot, sewing one stitch into a piece of fabric, writing more than one single letter of the alphabet. The general rule of observance was not to begin a work that might extend over to the Sabbath and not to do any work on the Sabbath that was absolutely necessary. And by necessary, meaning life-endangering. Such scrupulousness inevitably resulted in some novel things. Here are some of the more popular, or should I say comical, The Pharisees held that a woman should not look into a mirror on the Sabbath because she might see a gray hair and be tempted to pull it out, which would be working. A person was allowed to swallow vinegar as a remedy for a sore throat, but could not gargle with it on the Sabbath because it would be considered working. A person was not allowed to take more than 1,999 steps on the Sabbath, 800 meters, because that qualified as a journey, which was not permissible on the Sabbath. Medically, and you'll find this interesting, it was forbidden to set a dislocated foot or hand on the Sabbath. It was unlawful to repair a fallen roof, even though it might temporarily be able to be propped up. The rabbis endeavored to offer a rule or at least a precedent for every conceivable Sabbath question. And the comprehensiveness of the tradition is revealed in the following ruling. If a building fell down on the Sabbath, enough rubble could be removed to discover if any victims were dead or alive. If alive, they could be rescued. But if dead, the corpses must be left until sunset. Wow, right? Wow! Wow, what a contrast in comparison to what God intended the Sabbath to be. And this is the short list of hundreds of unbearable restrictions and imposed requirements enforced by the Pharisees, and it provides a backdrop 
for the Pharisees that, or of the controversies that we're going to study. Let's get started with the first one in your notes. The Sabbath controversy with the disciples. And it's a controversy in a cornfield or a wheat field. And it introduces us to the Pharisees' chief complaint followed by the Lord's revealing response. Look at verses 23 and 24. And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? First of all, we need to take special note of the fact that they were following Jesus. They got their eyes on him. And we know this, right? He's gaining momentum, ministry momentum. He's gaining traction. He's gaining notoriety. And they put him under the microscope, he and his disciples, and they're looking for something to accuse him of. And uh, honestly, this re- it serves as a good reminder for us that whether it's religious people or maybe it's people just in the watching world, that our lives are under a microscope. That there are people who are making observances about us because of our profession of faith in Christ. And it might even involve being scrutinized a little bit. Here their focus is on Christ's disciples and they accuse Him of doing something unlawful. In Deuteronomy 23-25, God makes a wonderful provision for the travelers of Israel. It says this, When you enter your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the head with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. So basically, this provision allowed in, in God's law allowed those who were traveling to pass through somebody else's field to eat enough to sustain them if they got hungry. It didn't mean that you could bring your sickle or your harvesting tool and, and go to town on their crop, right? You could just load up and say, man, this strawberry patch is amazing. Let's, let's, let's take them all, right? You could, you could have enough to be sustained. You could take any kind of food in, in a reasonable, sensible way to stave off your hunger. So the Old Testament allows this. And it doesn't just restrict it to six days of the week. It just says that you can do it. And the Old Testament also never restricts how far a person can walk. It simply says that God's people are to stop working and rest and spend the day worshiping God on the Sabbath. So the disciples are doing exactly what the Old Testament allowed them to do. They were not breaking the law. They're making their way along, picking some heads of grain. Matthew adds that they did this because they were hungry. This was perfectly within the purposes of God and inside the bounds of the revelation of God in the Old Testament. The problem is is that it happened to be in direct violation of the Pharisaical requirements that were recorded in the Talmud. The Talmud said that if you roll wheat in your hands to remove the husk, it is sifting and that is forbidden. If you rub the heads of wheat, it is threshing, and that is forbidden. If you clean off the shell, it is sifting, and that is forbidden. If you throw the chaff into the air, that is winnowing, it is forbidden. 
So as one commentator shared, just in picking and rolling and rubbing and discarding, they had been reaping, threshing, sifting, grinding, winnowing, and preparing food. So the Pharisees asked, why are they doing what is unlawful, even though it was permissible? Their real question, the real question that they're getting at is, why do you and your disciples not observe our requirements, our religion? Why are you in open defiance of our regulations? Why do you challenge us? Why do you challenge our authority? And now we're getting to the heart of the issue. Or should I say to the heart of the Pharisees? Remember that religious self-righteousness always tempts you to focus on a horizontal standard of righteousness, and it's completely incompatible with the gospel. In terms of the gospel, there's only a perfect vertical righteousness. And that comes from God through Christ. It does not, nor can it derive from man. And it's based on God's authority and what he determines as the righteous standard. It's not based on any human authority or any human standard of righteousness. And this is why God's word warns believers so intently not to judge one another. So how would Christ respond when the Lord's about to send them into a tailspin? Look at, look at his revealing response starting in verse 25. And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need? And his companions, when they became hungry, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with him. This response, by the way, just infuriated them. Because he, he does something, which he did all the, the, the time when dealing with their, their proud hearts. He, he, he asks it in question form. Do you not know? Have you not read? They, they, were, they were zealous for the scriptures, right? They were meticulous about knowing all the scriptures. And here the Lord Jesus Christ is asking them, Have you not read? Do you not know? This is... These are, these are, uh, this is a cutting question. And the account that Jesus is referring to comes in 1 Samuel chapter 21, and it shares the record of David and his com- companions showing up in desperate need of food. They, he, he was fleeing from Saul. They were out. They were, they were hungry. They were desperate. And so they enter the house of God, the tabernacle, in the time of Abiathar, the high priest. And the actual priest at this time was Ahimelech, but he was soon replaced by Abiathar, who had a lengthy priesthood. So that's why his name is associated with that time period. It's not a mistake in the scripture. It was understood in that context. They would have understood it. So his name is associated with, with that era. And what did the priest do? He allowed David to eat the consecrated bread. And he also allowed him to take some and give it to his friends. He did this because he understood that no ceremony should survive while someone starves to death. Ceremony is ceremony. And ritual is symbolic. And you don't save a ceremony at the expense of someone's life. You're not going to watch somebody pass out from hunger for, for, the, for the sake of ritual. Ceremony does have its place, but mercy 
always triumphs over ritual and ceremony. And when it comes to the life and death needs, the same principle applies in the mercy ministry of the church today. God would never want us to allow someone to starve to death when we can minister to that need. And the Lord wants us to be sensitive to the physical needs of the hungry and to help such a person. Yet the Pharisees lack mercy toward the hunger of the disciples for the, for the sake of keeping their Sabbath restriction. Not only did they lack mercy, but they were condemning the innocent in the process. Matthew's account adds something that we need to see. If you'll turn to Matthew chapter 12 with me, we, we need to see this because starting in chapter, or excuse me, verse 1 of chapter 12, it gives us the exact account, same account, but then Matthew records something additional that Jesus shares. Starting in verse 6, or excuse me, verse 5. Have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. This passage sheds tremendous light on what the Lord is trying to teach his disciples who are witnessing this whole thing go down. So he's discipling them in the process. And he's also exposing the Pharisees. Jesus uses David's example with the priests. And then he goes beyond to share that even other priests were permitted with similar concessions to break the Sabbath for the sake of ministering to someone. Even on the Sabbath. For the sake of ministry that they could have compassion on someone. Why? Because it reflects the very heartbeat of God. And Jesus' point is that their spiritual pride is an impediment. That it has this blinding effect on, on their hands of ministry. It's tying their hands. And it's not allowing them to minister with a heart of compassion towards his people. And it's so interesting that the Lord Jesus Christ quotes Hosea 6.6 in this passage. That he would cite that book specifically. I want you to turn there too. We, we need to see this too. Turn to Hosea, which is in the Old Testament. Right after uh, Daniel. Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea in that or, order. Hosea. If you get to Joel or Amos, you've gone too far. And the theme of the book is God's loyal love for his people. And what a book to cite, especially to the Pharisees who lacked love and compassion. And those familiar with the book, they know that the first portion is, is about the unfaithful wife, Gomer, and the, the, the faithful husband, uh, Hosea, which reflects the larger portion of the book, which is a contrast of adulterous Israel compared to the, the faithfulness of the Lord. And Hosea chapter 5 spells out Israel's unbelief and hardness of heart, which fittingly reflects the Pharisees. Just listening, listen to the opening five verses of chapter 5. Hear this, O priest. Stop there. So God's word starts with the religious leaders right, right from the beginning. Hear this, O priests. Give heed, O house of Israel. Listen, O house of the king, for the judgment applies to you, for you have been a snare at Mizpah, and a net spread out on Tabor. 
The revolters have gone deep in depravity, but I will chastise all of them. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the harlot, Israel, have played the harlot, Israel has defiled itself. Their deeds will not allow them to return to their God, for a spirit of harlotry is within them. End of verse 4, and they do not know the Lord. Verse 5, moreover, the pride of Israel testifies against him. And Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity, and Judah also has stumbled with them. The spiritual pride of Israel stood in direct opposition to the Lord. In the same way that the Pharisees' pride stood in direct opposition to Christ and the gospel. And they would have firmly understood the reference here. What response did this require for Israel in the book of Hosea? It comes in chapter 6. And we won't read the entire chapter, but let's read up to verse 6, which is actually what the Lord quotes, verse 6, in Matthew 12, starting in verse 1. And, and I want you to draw, draw your attention just to see the, the grace of God. I know sometimes we look back at the Old Testament and we don't, we don't see it. But God was so gracious in his dealings. He was And it starts in verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day. And this isn't symbolism to the resurrection here. It's just a a period of time denoting their, their, their need for repentance and restoration that they that we may live before him. Verse 3, so let us know. I love this verse. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What should I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. Therefore I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets and I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And the judgments on you are like the light that's continuing to go forth. My judgments are continuing to come forth just like the light is coming forth because it's just ongoing, this rebelliousness, this hardness of heart, this reality that you don't know me. It's just as steady as the light coming forth. Verse 6, for I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Jesus was comparing the adulterous unbelief and pride of Israel to the pride and self-righteousness of the Pharisees. And in the same gracious way, the God who sent the prophets to slay them with words, to slay them with judgment... Right? To break them. The Lord Jesus Christ, God Himself, is showing up on the scene and He's He's doing the same thing. His words are addressing their hardness of heart. And they should have learned from Israel's example instead of repeating it. In verse 6, the Lord is saying, I delight in mercy. I delight in compassion, in grace, in, in loyalty. 
This is the Hebrew word hesed, and it literally takes a dozen English words to define it. One word is not sufficient. And it is a reflection of God's um, his, his ongoing grace and the depth of his grace and his covenant love for his people. And Jesus wanted them to see that God doesn't want their sacrifices, especially through man-made Sabbath requirements and regulations, rules and rituals. He wants their hearts to reflect his, to know him, and understand their need for grace. This is the Lord's revealing response. And it's an assault on their religious pride. And Jesus, by the way, he's not encouraging them to make some minor spiritual adjustment to their thinking. But he's helping them see their unbelief and their need for transformation. They need a new heart. They need a new nature. Recently on the Czech trip, there was a man who's been coming to English camp for a number of years now. His name is Ondra, and it's the Czech equivalent of Andrew. And he's come to English camp for a number of years. And Tom and Doreen have been so faithful to minister the gospel to Ondra and to answer his questions. He even shared that he loves English camp because it gives him an opportunity to ask so many questions about God and, and to get answers that, that he's searching for. He's a computer guy. He works in IT for a company in Czech. And I had a chance to share with Ondra that human beings in many ways are, are just like computers. We all have a history that re- reflects the good and the bad that we have done. And all of our operating systems are infected by sin. Sin is like a virus on a computer. And even the good things that we do, like good programs on a computer, the virus is attached and it affects everything whether we see it or we don't. So our sin is attached and plagued to everything that we do, whether we we see it or we don't. Like the scripture says, teaches us, the principle applies for us, that, that all of our, even our righteous deeds are like filthy garments, according to Isaiah 64, 6. And I was sharing with Ondra that when a person becomes a Christian, it isn't like adding a new program to your already existing computer. It isn't just going to the, the, the programs that don't seem like they're so infected by uh, the sin virus. You need a new operating system. You need a a, a new operating system. And the only way for you you to change is for for the Lord to to reboot you. You You have to surrender and you have to give your computer up. Right? There is no little fix. There is no minor change. But only Christ can cleanse your history and your hard drive and give you new life by giving you a new nature. But I shared with Ondra. I told him that many people don't want a new operating system. 
They like their computer just the way that it is because they, they love their sin. And even though that they could have access to God, the, the, the supercomputer, the all-knowing, the all-powerful one, and that they could have a connection with Him, that they still want to run on their old operating system of sin. Their Windows 2.1. And this is what every person who tries to be a good person or even a religious person runs into. And this was true of the Pharisees. They were trying to operate on religious software. They were trying to operate on a religious operating system when they needed to be transformed by the grace of God. The old wineskins and old material cannot work. The religious system built on Sabbath requirements cannot work. It is absolutely incompatible with the gospel of grace. And their need for grace is evident in the Lord's revealing response as he shared David's example. And this first controversy concludes with Jesus explaining both the purpose and the authority over the Sabbath in verses 27 and 28. Look at the purpose in verse 27. Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. As previously mentioned, the Sabbath was made for man's benefit and blessing. It was for the good of his body and his mind and his soul to cease and take a day from not working and to be refreshed, to be encouraged. And the original command to keep the Sabbath holy was not intended to prevent acts of mercy. Oh my goodness, that's the last thing that it would be intended to do. Prevent acts of mercy, or better yet, limit the number of steps that a person could take. It was never the intent. And this was the point that the Pharisees had forgotten as they buried it under all of their traditions. As one commentator shares, Jesus corrects their mistaken interpretation that makes the commands of the Torah a burdensome yoke on human existence and features its true intent as an aid and guardian of life. Do you see how this helps us see the contrast between the ministry of religious self-righteousness and the ministry of grace by faith? You see, the con- we, we see it. Old Testament saints were saved by faith through grace as they looked to the promise of Christ and their, their love for God is what helped them to obey. It's reflected in the, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the people who functioned in grace were able to honor and please God through, through, their, through their obedience. The battle that Old Testament believers faced, however, came from religious leaders and those influenced by them who embraced a legalistic system of righteousness. And this is the battle that the Lord Jesus Christ faced with the Jewish op- opposition throughout His ministry. And it provides deep insight into the Lord's invitation that was written to primarily a Jewish audience in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew eleven twenty eight, when he extends that invitation that we're all so familiar with. But it would have been it would have been so real to the Jews. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I 
I will give you rest. And that's what the, that we, we sang that song, Come Ye Sinners. And just thank you, Jonathan. This was such a, a reflection of the pharisaical heart, come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, if you work, if you're going to go ahead and try to work, if you're going to do a works righteousness, guess what? You will never come at all. You'll never see your need. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms In the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are 10,000 charms. And the Lord Jesus Christ was letting them know, listen, the kingdom of God is at hand. And I know that you're all succumbing to this system, this legalistic system that is not going to get you anywhere. It cannot work. It will not work. And of course, they would question the authority of Jesus. And he finishes his Sabbath sabotage with one of the most prolific statements that could be made. In verse 28, Jesus says this. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Let me tell you about this verse right here. This is one of those verses worth underlining in in your scripture because with this, this verse, let me tell you what this verse does. This verse shapes the nails and fashions the nails that would pierce Christ's hands and his feet and nail him to that cross. That's what that verse, that single verse does right there. It shapes it. And he was was letting them know that the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And it's a death blow to the pharisaical Sabbath system, and it positions Christ's authority directly and vehemently in opposition to theirs. They're incompatible. It's it's the gospel of grace, right? It's God's righteousness through faith, or it's nothing. This is not working. They're, they're, They're different. They're different. And Jesus, he, he often referred to himself as the Son of Man. I actually researched it because I was like, he does use that expression a lot in the Gospels. 31 times in the Gospel of Matthew, 15 in the Gospel of Mark, 30 again in Luke, 14 in the Gospel of John. I looked it up. The Son of Man. And yet he's already used it. This is the second time he uses it in the Gospel of Mark. If you look back 18 verses earlier, after he heals the paralytic, and he said, so that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. Right? Referencing himself, saying, I say to you, get up your pallet, pick up your pallet, and walk. And here Jesus is telling the Pharisees that he is Lord even of the Sabbath. How would they interpret this? Three ways. One, Jesus just said that he is God. Two, Jesus just said that he is our Lord. Three, he just said that he has the authority over the Sabbath. You know what they call those? 
them is fighting words right there. Those are fighting words. That is, that is an assault on their righteousness. That is an assault on their system to build themselves up and to escalate. And, and that's what self-righteousness does. It always serves self. That's why it's called self-righteousness. Right? And it really comes down to a standard. And it's a man's standard. And when it comes down to authority, it's their authority. And they say who's in. And they say who's out. But we all know that the vertical righteousness, the, the righteousness that comes from above, it's so far up there, it's perfect. And what does it do? It pushes down. It, it, it weighs down. It, it puts every single religion that would proclaim that you can make yourself better and you can do it if you just put your mind to it. And well, where there's a will, there's heaven. There, you, can, you can reach and grab it. Lies. And all of this is setting us up for the second controversy to take place, which we'll get to study the next time that we're together. But what's our primary takeaway from this text? And there's no direct commands in it, right, for us, as it relates to application. There's, there's nothing direct, but I mentioned it in the last sermon with, with the wineskins. There's a principle as we go back to Matthew 6 and that very opening verse that where, where Christ warns the disciples, and it's a principle that we can apply to us as Christians that says, beware of practicing your righteousness before men, right? To be noticed by them. You know, and I, I rejoice in the rich gospel heritage that is here at Cornerstone. That God has been so good to this church to, to help us see and, and the faithfulness even of James preaching to point to the vertical righteousness of Christ and that there is no other way, right? It's defining. It's His righteousness. It's His righteousness. And we're so blessed as a church. I was, I, you guys know my testimony. I was raised in the Catholic church. I was raised in condemnation. It was mortal sin if you missed church on Sunday. And there are churches, even evangelical churches, that get caught up in a, in a legalistic atmosphere, an environment that, that weighs down on its people. And we're so blessed. Why? There is freedom. There's freedom in, in looking through that vertical righteousness. There is. And we do want to be aware of practicing our righteousness before men to be noticed by them. And we want our righteous behavior to point people to Christ, not to ourselves. We get that. We get that. But there's a battle there with that, isn't there not? Right? There's a, there's a battle that takes place w- w- within, right? And we have, to, we have to focus on the vertical righteousness, right? We, we, we want to minister. Let me say it this way. We want to minister in the spirit of the law. We want people to see the freedoms that come that comes through through faith, through grace, and to function and, and the joy and the freedom that the commands of Christ provide for us. Not minister in the letter of the law. Oh, you weren't at church on Sunday? You forsook the assembly. You know what I mean? But you know, how do you minister? And it, 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 how can you 
you can, you can express concern. If somebody doesn't come to church for a long time, you just say, hey, I just want to see how you're doing. And, you know, it was such a blessing to, to be back. I mean, we got to hear the missions report from how the team did in Czech Republic. There were so many, the, the encouragements or First Thessalonian Bible study on Thursday nights or care groups been going so well. And this is whatever. You know, do you see that ministry and grace? See that ministry of, of grace to people? Not in the letter of the law. Not in something that, that weighs people down. Now, as it relates to us being effective witnesses to the world, they're under the letter of the law. They're under God's judgment. Right? But as it relates to the ministry of us, believer to believer, we're, it's grace. We function in the spirit of the law, one to another. Right? There is no better than me, better than you, and you better than anyone else. We function in, in the spirit uh, and, and, and the spirit of the law as we, as we minister and care for one another. And there's freedom there. And my heart does ache for those that who've had a church experience where you fell victim to the letter of the law. And that you've been suppressed and the commands of Christ are have-tos instead of get-tos. My heart aches for you. And I pray that God would use this sermon, that God would use the, the messages as we, as we look to this principle that we pull from Matthew 6, even of our own righteousness, that last time we preached in Mark and this message today and the next time that we preach in Mark as we see, as we see the, just the exposure of the, the incompatibility of any self-righteousness as it relates to the gospel. Amen and amen. Well, next Sunday I will be back in Chicago for my twin brother's wedding. And our very own Sam Cogburn is going to uh, supply the pulpit for us. And he's going to preach from 1 Thessalonians 2. And your hearts will be encouraged. And I know that he'll appreciate me sharing this just so that you can be in prayer for him this week as he gets ready to minister the word. And then we're going to continue Sabbath Sabotage Part 2 the following Sunday when I return. Okay, please join me and let's pray. Gracious, merciful, loving, kind Father, we rejoice in the righteousness that is yours and yours alone. We thank you for the boldness and the veracity of the Lord Jesus Christ to stand up to opposition. Not just to stand up, but to track down and to expose And he did it for the greatest enemy that we could ever face one-on-one in a spiritual battle when he destroyed Satan and defeated every temptation that was thrown his way. And Father, he also opposed every works, righteousness, and self-righteous system that could ever exist. And the gift of your grace 
the gift of faith will always stand in direct opposition and be incompatible with every single one of those systems. We thank you, those of us who have been rescued out of a background where we were in bondage. We, we thank you for freeing us. We thank you for allowing us to be at a gospel lighthouse, to be at a church where we get to sing about this reality, that we get to hear teaching about this reality and truly celebrate you. I pray, Father, that as it relates to even the temptation of being self-righteous in some fashion, even as a believer, that you would allow us to be transparent. That we would be transparent before you, that we would even be transparent with our spouse, with our parents, with our friends, that we'd be willing to ask even the tough question, is there any way that, or any perception of self-righteousness in my life? Is there anything that is a poor testimony to the grace of the gospel in my life, to the righteousness that was unmerited? Is there any any way that I can grow? Is there any way that I can learn? I pray that that would be our takeaway this week, that we would be able to reflect on that more, and that we would be sensitive and see any areas where we we cling to self-righteousness, that we would repent just like you called Israel to repent, just like you faithfully led the Lord to slay the Pharisees with the words that would pierce their heart. Would you pierce our hearts this week, this day, and all the days ahead and expose those areas of hardness that need to be softened, that need to be made right? Thank you again for the opportunity that you've given us to worship. We pray that you'll bless our second hour Would you receive the honor and the glory from all that you accomplished through our Czech missions trip? And we look forward to hearing this this report. We give you all the praise. In Christ's name we pray, amen.